0: Today on Golden Girls Sports, we reach for our balls and jokes about bowling and bocce.
1: Marcus
2: Allen, Mike Tyson, extra innings, the tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson, Bobby, oh, Tampa Bay Bucks, and there off the pig takes the lead. The chicken.
0: The competition aired on November second, nineteen eighty-five. The seventh episode of the show's very first season. It was written by Barry Finaro and Mort Nathan, their second produced script, and directed by Jim Drake. Now. This gets complicated, so listen up. Blanche is getting ready for a bowling tournament her and Rose participated in the year before, where they lost to Sonia and Olga Nielsen. Sophia lets slip that Dorothy was once a 180 bowler, and Dorothy says her mother was no slouch herself. Believe it or not, this causes Rose to get an idea. The next day, Blanche is stunned to find that Rose and Dorothy have signed up as partners for the tournament. And Rose has a confession.
2: I did it. Dorothy's a better bowler than you are, and I want to win this year. (laughs) Rose, how
0: could
1: you do a thing like this?
2: I admit it. I have a problem. I'm too competitive when it comes to athletics. I've never told anybody this, but I had to transfer high schools because of a field hockey incident.
0: (laughs) Dorothy is annoyed by Rose's actions and wants to back out. But Blanche has already found a new partner in Olga Nielsen who wants to get back at her sister Sonia for sleeping with her boyfriend. Speaking of boyfriends, while this is all going on, Sophia gets a visit from an old one of hers from Sicily, who asks her to return to the old country for the San Gennaro Festival. Dorothy won't allow it, and refuses to loan Sophia the money to go. The next day, Rose goes for the double-double cross. She signs up with Sonia Nielsen, hoping to pit the sisters against each other. That's when the double-double crosser gets double-crossed herself.
2: You are not gonna believe what happened. Those Nielsen twins are back together. What? Lars Lindquist, the man they were fighting over, he's dead. Found slumped over a desk at his Volvo dealership. (laughs) When the girls found out about it, they decided to forgive each other. Now they're back together in the tournament. Gee, Blanche, it's too bad you won't have anybody to bore with (laughs) now. We better get down to the alley for some practice, partner.
1: Forget it, Rose. I am dumping you. Blanche, how would you like me to be your partner?
2: Oh, I would love it. Dorothy, you can't can't do this. Now, I don't have a partner. Yes, you do. I'll be your partner, Rose. Ma. You think I can't take care of myself? You think I'm too feeble to go to Sicily? I'll show you who's not the woman she used to be. Come on, Blanche. I'm Rose. (laughs) Simple mistake means nothing
0: okay, so the teams are set. Dorothy and Blanche versus Rose and Sophia. Lots of gamesmanship follows, like fashion bullying, mind games, and lots of serious trash talk, sometimes even between teammates.
1: Blanche?
2: I'm fine. I just feel a little cold and clammy and
1: uh, just a little short of breath. Now you just settle down, you hear me? Settle down. Don't make me
2: do this, Dorothy. This
1: ball feels like it weighs about 100 pounds. Honey, I sympathize with you. I mean, anyone who has ever competed understands what you're going through. So listen, sweetheart, Mm. if you don't feel like bowling, you don't have to. Oh, good. You just hold on to the ball and I'll throw you down the alley.
0: It all comes down to the final frame, with Dorothy literally having the game in her hand. A strike wins and stops Sophia from her trip to Sicily. That's when she looks over and sees her mother and her old beau, Augustine, talking over at the concession stand.
1: Your daughter is a very good player, Sophia. She must have picked it up from you, huh?
2: How do you know I'm a good bowler? Because
1: you were so good at bocce ball. Remember we played together once?
2: Oh, yeah, after the grape harvest. Boy, that was a nice afternoon. Very nice and you know what else was nice about that day that was my first kiss mine too (laughs) go get him dorothy whip their butts (laughs) oh oh dorothy
0: And that's it. Dorothy tanks the shot, Rose gloats, Blanche pouts, and Sophia goes to Sicily with Dorothy's blessing. Rose ends up feeling bad and buys them all a trophy they can share, with her name much larger than everyone else's on it. The competition is the first time we see Rose's ultra-competitive side, but it wouldn't be the last. We talked at length in Season 1 of this podcast about Blind Date the season four episode in which Rose and Dorothy coach a kid's football team despite their opposing views on athletics. Betty White talked in her biography Here We Go Again about Rose's Viking temper being a big part of the character's construction. Sophia's old boyfriend, Augustine Bagatelli, was played by veteran TV character actor Ralph Monza, who has a filmography two miles long dating back to the early 50s. Shows like Highway Patrol, Judge Roy Bean, and Alfred Hitchcock Presents were just the start, after he finished serving as a medic in the Army. Parts just kept coming throughout the decades, and found Monza in some interesting places, like the very first episode of General Hospital, four episodes of Perry Mason, five of Get Smart, and all 17 episodes of George Papard's private eye show, Banachek, where Monza played his sidekick-slash-chauffeur. Monza continued to pop up on a host of shows until 2000, the year he passed away a few weeks after suffering a heart attack on the set of a Budweiser commercial. His final role was a voiceover part in the animated film The Tangerine Bear, Home in Time for Christmas, which was released 11 months after his death. Director Jim Drake was the third person to helm a Golden Girls episode, after Jay Sandrich and Paul Bogart. Drake directed eight episodes of the first season, and watched a lot of the show's processes take shape. Starting as an associate producer under Norman Lear, Drake struck out on his own with episodes of Where the Heart Is and Alice before really hitting it big on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, directing 157 episodes of the show. Before The Golden Girls, he also directed The Facts of Life, We Got It Made, Gimme a Break, and Buffalo Bill. After the Golden Girls, he did 63 episodes of Night Court, Martin Short Kids' Show The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley, and Police Academy 4 Citizens on Patrol. His last directing jobs were on Disney Channel's The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. Published in 1818, Washington Irving's book Rip Van Winkle contained the first mention of bowling in pop culture when the titular hero is awoken by the sound of, quote, crashing ninepins. But the sport can trace its history way, way before then. In the 1930s, archeologists found artifacts in a grave of an Egyptian child showing a game played with balls and lanes dating back a few thousand years. The ancient Polynesians played ulameka, a pitching game with stones and stakes. Reports also come from Germany around 300 BC, and the reigns of King Edward III in the 14th century and Henry VIII in the 15th and 16th centuries of people playing something that maybe sorta of kinda of resembles bowling. Pins weren't always involved. Sometimes it was holes or stones. In one variation, players threw themselves onto the lanes. The British, French, Germans, and Italians all had different variations that they brought with themselves to the New World. Whatever it was, it was popular enough for a space in New York City to be carved out on which to play it, which is still called Bowling Green. And as with pretty much every sport, it soon became popular with gamblers too. In 1841, the state of Connecticut banned bowling, but it didn't last. In 1895, the American Bowling Congress was formed to finally standardize the game and organize tournaments. The first one was organized and supplied by a man named Moses Bensinger, who worked with the Brunswick Company and was the son-in-law of founder J.M. Brunswick. The company had gone whole hog into bowling starting around 1890, and by the time the Congress was set up was already the makers of lanes, balls, and pins. In 1917, the Ladies' International Bowling Congress was formed, which led to the Ladies' National Bowling Association. Change came quickly after that. Balls went from wood, to rubber, to mineralite, to coated resin, polyurethane, or plastic. Pins used to be set by pin boys that sat at the end of lanes and reset them after every frame. Introduced in 1952 by the American Machine and Foundry Company, known as AMF today, automatic pin setters put an end to that career choice. And if you grew up in the 70s or 80s, there's a good chance you caught the pro bowlers tour on TV, probably just before ABC's Wide World of Sports. Today, about 2 million people bowl in leagues and about 70 million bowl casually at some point every year. Everybody knows the bowling alley in their neighborhood, even if they never go there. And if you have kids, I guarantee you found yourself in an alley for a birthday party. I don't know how many people own their own bowling balls, but whoever does surely owns a bag that goes along with it. What else could you carry in a bowling ball bag? How about a frozen human head? Hey, don't blame me, blame Blanche. In Season 7's Home Again Rose, a two-part episode co-written by Gail Parent and Jim Valley. Rose has a heart attack at a high school reunion the girls have crashed. Later in the episode, she comes to the decision that she wants to be frozen. Not her whole body because that's too expensive, just her head. That way, once they've got a cure, they just defrost her and bring her back to life. And she wants the girls to promise to respect her wishes.
2: No, I want to get my head frozen. And I want you to promise me you'll help me with this.
1: All right, if it'll make you happy, I will see that your head gets to the cryogenics people, and Blanche will help me too.
0: Well, I do
2: have George's old bowling ball bag.
0: (laughs) In part two, Rose has a dream that she actually went through with the procedure, leading to a sequence in which she, Dorothy, and Blanche are just heads on ice sitting on their own kitchen table, while Sophia has had her head transplanted onto the body of a 25-year-old woman. The scene is a Golden Girls classic and required some trick photography that had more in common with the Lord of the Rings movies than the Golden Girls. Director Peter D. Bate explained the unique challenges of staging the fantasy. Quote, The bigger problem was that Bea was claustrophobic, so she automatically let us know that she didn't want to be in some little box or crouched under the table with her head sticking out. I had done some effects work before and I had an idea. We raised the table so we could put B, Rue, and Betty in office chairs and then roll them right into place. Then I also put platforms behind the table to bring Estelle up to the proper relative height. Finally, I cheated the perspective with the cameras so that the cabinets and the rest of the kitchen look in the right proportions. So the scene looks like it was shot with the regular kitchen table, but underneath it, B was sitting on an office chair completely upright. The other women even tucked their knees in to give B more legroom. She had a brief moment of angst and panic, but nothing big, and we got the shot for a scene so many people remember." End quote. The Golden Girls talked a lot about bowling during their time, and it was essentially used as a punchline for an entire episode in season four. In Scared Straight, written by Christopher Lloyd, Sophia gets signs in a dream that her Salvador will come for her and take her to the afterlife. Dorothy, of course, thinks this is ridiculous but after seeing some affirmations all over the place, Sophia remains adamant that her end is nigh and right outside the door.
2: Move, Rose. Ah, don't. I have to, Dorothy. Ma. Mildred, what are you doing here? When do I always wear my lucky bowling hat? We're bowling tonight? Didn't you get my message the other night? No one answered the door. I figured you were napping, so I yelled outside your window, we had room. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Were your exact words, Sophia, you can come now? We have room now? And were you wearing that hat at the time? Yes. How's the little Dorothy? I'm going bold.
0: <laughs> Sophia's friend Mildred was played by actress Gwen E. Davis, who has a very small list of credits. In addition to the Golden Girls, she made appearances on LA Law, Doogie Hauser MD, it's Gary Shandling's show *An Alien Nation. Her two big movie roles were in Richard Benjamin's Downtown and Mike Binder and Damon Wayans' Blank Man. Like Blanche Delivers, an episode we've discussed before, Scared Straight is an important half-hour of TV, but not because of its sports jokes. That's the one in which Blanche's brother Clayton visits the house after getting separated from his wife. But that's not all that's going on in his life. Clayton is gay and after a botched date with Rose, is forced to come out to his less-than-comforting sister. But in the end, Blanche realizes that Clayton is still the baby brother she's always loved, and that he's happier now that he can be honest about himself. Clayton was played by Monty Markham, who's had a long career not just as an actor on stage, TV, and in movies, but as a writer, producer, and director as well. His first TV credits were on a two-part Mission Impossible in 1966 and his all-American square-jawed handsomeness landed him parts on a lot of cop shows throughout the 70s like Hawaii Five-O, 0 Policewoman, and Barnaby Jones. Memorably, he played a bionic nemesis of Six Million Dollar Man Steve Austin in an episode of that show entitled, no joke, The Seven Million Dollar Man. When The Six Million Dollar Man was being developed as a TV series, original author Martin Caden actually preferred Markham for the title role, but he lost out to Lee Majors. Markham did play the title character on the short-lived revival series The New Perry Mason. But Monty Markham wasn't just a hunk. He was also an award-winning actor and adept at both drama and comedy. He also popped up on the Mary Tyler Moore show, Love American Style, The Love Boat, and Hogan's Heroes. On stage, he's been Horatio in Hamlet, Mark Antony in Antony and Cleopatra, done Bernard Slade's Same Time next year, and won a Theater World Award for his Broadway work in Irene, co-starring Debbie Reynolds. I remember Monty Markham from the early seasons of Baywatch, in which he played lifeguard captain Don Thorpe. He transitioned into directing episodes as the character was phased out of the series. He worked a lot in the 90s doing Melrose Place, Murder, She Wrote, and Grace Under Fire, among others. But he found a new outlet in TV documentaries, producing, directing, and narrating hundreds of hours of shows for A&E and the History Channel. He left acting for a while, but he's back now, doing some voiceover work and short films, as well as a few episodes of Fox's Fringe. Markham played Clayton Hollingsworth in two episodes of The Golden Girls*: Scared Straight and Sister of the Bride. He said the script for Scared Straight was, quote, well-written and funny as hell, and that he had, quote, never thought twice about playing gay or being typecast. If I were to do that, then I'd be in the wrong business, end quote. Rue McClanahan wasn't a fan of the episode, not because it was bad, but because it was a difficult one for her to do because of Blanche's homophobia. As we discuss in our feature episode on her, McClanahan was far from prejudiced against the gay community, but Blanche Devereaux, who openly longed for a return to the simple days of chivalry and occasional slavery, would most definitely have a problem understanding her brother's coming out. McClanahan said in Golden Girls Forever, I'm just glad she came around. Writer Christopher Lloyd said of the episode, A gay relative seemed like a natural idea and perfect for Blanche. Dorothy is from Brooklyn, so it would have shocked her less. But Blanche is not only the most sexual of the characters, but you could say she is the most fiercely heterosexual. Plus, she's from the South and rather traditional. And of course, we can play on the idea of Blanche and her brother both liking guys, which we knew would be a fun avenue to go down. We got to have our cake and eat it too in this episode. We could do our gay jokes and then have a nice, tidy, lovely ending where Blanche embraces her brother and everyone is happy. End quote. Not everyone is happy when another bowling reference is made. In season one's That's No Lady, written by Liz Sage, Dorothy meets a new man at her current school, who, ironically, has a sports connection himself.
1: No, he's a teacher at the school where I've been subbing. A gorgeous gym teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, I noticed him a few times, and today, as luck would have it, I found myself right behind him in the line in the cafeteria. After I butted ahead of 25 students. (laughs) Anyway, we started talking and in 30
0: seconds I was in love. Unfortunately, gym teacher Glenn is also married. And Dorothy has to reconcile her love for him and his apparent sincere love for her with the pain of having been a cheated on wife herself. Sophia has no such reconciling to do. She thinks what her daughter is doing is wrong and uses bowling as a way to make that point.
1: Ma, where are my shoes?
2: Another date with Mrs. O'Brien's husband?
1: Now look, don't you start with me. I will continue to see Glenn for as long as I please. Is he gonna leave his wife? Ma, Ma, for the first time in a long time, I am really happy, so
2: please leave me alone. If you're so happy, how come I hear you pacing in your room night after night?
1: I can't sleep, I have a lot on my
2: mind. I'll tell you what's on your mind. You hate yourself. I do not. My mistake. I've only known you since the day you were born.
1: Look, I've heard enough, Ma. I'm leaving now to meet Glenn and have a perfectly marvelous time. I hope he's taking you bowling. Bowling?
0: Yeah, you could rent shoes there. In the end, Dorothy breaks up with Glenn because she can't see a happy future in it. But three seasons later, she starts up with him again. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Glenn was played by actor Alex Rocco, who had an improbable 50-year career in show business with memorable roles in some of the most famous productions in all of pop culture. Originally from Cambridge, Massachusetts, Alessandro Federico Petriconi was a bookie and, in his own words, a degenerate gambler. He had an arrest record and spent several months in prison at one point. At 30 years old, he enrolled in acting classes, but was kicked out by his teacher because his Boston accent was too thick. So he took speech classes to kind of turn Boston into New York, which the teacher found more palatable. That teacher, by the way, was another actor from Boston who you may have heard of named Leonard Nimoy. For the first few years of his career, Rocco used his acting talent and personal experience to play a lot of crooks, hoods, gangsters, and other shady characters. He was even on Batman playing a henchman for Roger C. Carmel's Colonel Gum in the Green Hornet Batman crossover episode. But one of them stood out above all the others. As Vegas mobster Mo Green and Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, Rocco didn't have a lot of screen time and doesn't even appear until the movie's more than half over. But his death, shot in the eye as new godfather Michael Corleone settles all family business, blasted his career into high gear in very short order. Quote: I had no idea what Mo Green was gonna do for me. There was an off-Broadway play, Who Shot Mo Green? There was a Mo Green's Bakery, Alec Baldwin did Mo Green on Saturday Night Live. Billy Crystal opened up the Academy Awards once saying, I ran into Mo Green outside. It just didn't die down. End quote. You name a TV show in the 70s, chances are Alex Rocco was on it, especially if a crime was involved. I could read them all to you, but you're better off just going to IMDb and reading them for yourself. But he wasn't all about the tough guys. He did more than his share of sitcoms like Get Smart, That Girl, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. I grew up in the 80s, and before I even saw The Godfather... I knew Alex Rocco as Charlie Polnicek, Joe's father on a bunch of episodes of The Facts of Life. His other movie credits include The Friends of Eddie Coyle and Cannonball Run 2. Incredibly, for all of his work in hugely popular shows and movies, Rocco won his only Emmy for a show barely anyone remembers. The famous Teddy Z was a one-season show starring John Cryer as a kid who goes from mailroom nobody to Hollywood agent thanks to one well-timed punch to an actor's face. Rocco played Al Floss, a rival agent determined to take Teddy down, and he won the Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series at the 1990 Emmys for it. The same year he won his Emmy, he made his first of three appearances on The Simpsons as itchy and scratchy studio boss Roger Myers Jr. He was also in A Bug's Life and an episode of Family Guy where he voiced an animated version of B. Arthur, which is just a little off-putting. One of his last big roles was back in the world of the mob on the star show Magic City. In July of 2015, Alex Rocco passed away from pancreatic cancer at the age of 79. His is one of the most prolific and interesting careers of any actor of the last 40 years. He was much more than just a character actor, and very much a character himself. He was also replaced as Glenn on The Golden Girls by Jerry Orbach in Cheaters, the character's second appearance. And if I could work a few minutes of Jerry Orbach in here, believe me, I would. So far, I can't. Anyway, moving on. Let's get back to the competition. Augustine and Sophia reminisce about playing bocce back in Sicily. That makes a lot of sense, since it's the official sport of old Italian guys everywhere. But it didn't start in that country. In fact, it sounds like bocce started in the same place that bowling did, back in ancient Egypt. The action of throwing larger objects towards a smaller object and seeing who gets closest goes back thousands of years. The Egyptians used polished rocks, and art found in a tomb dating back to 5,000 years BC also shows two boys playing a bocce-like game. From Egypt, it traveled to the Greeks and then the Romans, who later played the game using coconuts brought back from Africa. Bocce gets its name from the Latin word botia, meaning boss. That in itself is ironic considering all of the bosses that tried to stop fanatical bocce players from getting too wrapped up in their games. While luminaries like Emperor Augustus, Hippocrates, Galileo, Da Vinci, Queen Elizabeth I, and Sir Francis Drake were all devoted players, a bunch of others didn't like it. Roman Emperor Charles IV banned the game in 1319, and both King Carlos IV and King Carlos V of Spain did the same in the succeeding centuries. In 1576, the city of Venice outlawed Bocce, and anyone caught playing it could be tossed in jail. Finally, the entire Catholic Church condemned the game and banned clergymen from playing it because they saw Bocce as an entry point to gambling. But it was another Italian who brought it back. War hero, politician, and uniter Giuseppe Garibaldi. Yes, the same Giuseppe Garibaldi that Sofia talks about in Season 4's Till Death Do We Volley, brought the game on his many military campaigns, helping popularize it all over the continent. In the late 19th century, after Garibaldi's death, the first Bocce Olympics were held in Athens. Although Italian immigrants in the 19th and 20th centuries are credited with bringing Bocce to America, it was here long before then. Rumor has it that none other than George Washington was a player and had a court built at his Mount Vernon home. The Fédération Internationale des Boules, or FIB, was formed in 1946 as the sport's governing body. Another organization called the Confédération Balliste Internationale works in Europe, and the two groups have been trying to get bocce added to the Olympics. So far, they're not close. But it was added to the Special Olympics starting in 1991. In 2011, over 200,000 athletes competed in bocce events through the Special Olympics. Bocce came up a number of times on the Golden Girls, usually in some punchline zinging somebody's Italian heritage. In season five's Great Expectations, written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss, Sophia gets philosophical by referencing a long-lost cousin. But Dorothy remembers things a little differently.
1: I mean, I can't believe that something as insignificant as a leaky faucet could bring all these bad thoughts about myself. It is a very serious thing,
2: Dorothy. Ma, what can I do about it? Try changing the washer.
1: <laughs> Ma, I'm talking about my negative thinking.
2: I know what you're talking about. Remember what your cousin Federico used to say? People waste their time pondering whether a glass is half empty or half
1: full. Me, I just drink
2: whatever's in the glass. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Ma, cousin Federico was a hopeless alcoholic who played bocce ball with an imaginary friend named Little Luigi. <laughs> Kind of puts that dripping force in
2: perspective,
0: doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds like a few of the guys my dad probably knows. Somebody everybody knows is Nancy Walker, who played Sophia's sister Angela in two episodes. In her second appearance, season two's Long Day's Journey into Marinara, written by Barry Fenara and Mort Nathan, the girls convince Aunt Angela to move to Miami. Unfortunately, that means that she lives at the house while reluctantly looking for her own place and generally driving Sophia crazy. She also may have mistakenly fried a piano-playing chicken named Count Bessie that Rose was chicken-sitting for a friend.
2: Hey, Rose, what you got there? Exhibit A! You know, I like Rose. When a woman throws herself on a platter of chicken and screams murderer, she is not playing with a full set of bocce
0: balls. Turns out Aunt Angela didn't actually cook Count Bessie, and she returned safely to tickle those tiny ivories once again. We talked about Nancy Walker's history with Estelle Getty back in our feature episode on her. Also in that episode, I mistakenly referred to Walker's character in the Bounty Paper Towel commercials as Madge, who was actually the lady from the Palmolive dish soap commercials. Walker's character was named Rosie, and the lady from the Palmolive ads was played by actress Jan Miller. Sorry about that. Got my old pitch ladies mixed up. But before the Golden Girls and before Bounty Paper Towels and before MacMillan and Wife, and before Rhoda and The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Family Affair, Nancy Walker was an experienced and beloved stage and film actor from an extremely early age. She was born in Philadelphia. Her parents were both performers in vaudeville, and legend says that when she was less than a year old, Anna Myrtle Swoyer crawled out on stage during a show and was an instant hit. She worked on radio and in nightclubs as a teenager, But her big break was in the musical Best Foot Foam, where the small part of A Girl on a Blind Date was expanded just for her. More hits followed, both on stage and on screen. On the Town, Girl Crazy, Lucky Me, Pal Joey, and Desk Set are just a few of the titles she worked on. She stood under five feet tall, with a thick wave of red hair and a face that both blended into the crowd and stuck out like a sore thumb. She described herself as a quiet person who was, quote, Not so talkative, but she specialized in brassy, fiery ladies who didn't take no for an answer. As the 70s dawned, Walker started doing those bounty commercials, and she credited them with getting her her biggest success. It was Ida Morgenstern, the overbearing mother to Valerie Harper's Rhoda on both the Mary Tyler Moore Show and the character's popular spin-off that really cemented Nancy Walker into America's collective memory. Ida drove Rhoda and her husband Joe crazy, while cracking viewers up, probably because they didn't have to deal with her. And while on both of those CBS shows, she was also co-starring on a third hit show, Macmillan and Wife, over on NBC, something no actor had ever done before. Walker also directed episodes of both Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda, and the feature film Can't Stop the Music, a notorious box office bomb that starred the village people, and, as he was known at the time, Bruce Jenner. The movie was Walker's only feature as a director, and was so bad it helped inspire the birth of the Razzie Awards, given out every year to the worst films and performances. In March of 1992, Nancy Walker passed away from lung cancer at the age of 69. She never won an Emmy, but was nominated for Best Supporting Actress seven times, the last of which was for Long Day's Journey into Marinera. For an actor that made so many people laugh in so many ways for so long, even she didn't get how she did it. She once said, quote, I don't understand it myself, but I have this effect on people. So when I walk on stage, they start laughing. End quote. Finally, let's go back to Till Death Do We Volley, the season four episode we discussed at length in the first episode of this season. Remember when Rose and Blanche caught Dorothy and her friend Trudy arm wrestling in the kitchen? In addition to that and the tennis that gets brought up later, Rose briefly gets excited about another variation of the throwing a ball down the lane genre. At least, I think it is. Trudy, how
1: about if tomorrow we play a real game, you know, something that requires real skill? You mean like midget ice (laughs) bowling?
0: I'm talking about tennis, you doofus. (laughs) It's probably best not to ask any questions and just leave it at that. The competition is one of my favorite episodes, even though I don't think it's considered one of the show's real classics. Anytime the girls all compete against each other, it's comedy gold, and this is an early but perfect example of that. While Rose is vicious in the first half, Dorothy takes over towards the end. There are so many great moments, it's hard to pick just a few to include here. I could have just run the whole thing, but just the audio wouldn't do it justice. It also might have been illegal to do so, so I think I'll pass. Maybe you can watch the episode and then use this as a companion piece. Even though I suck at it, I do enjoy bowling, and I feel a certain comfort level in a bowling alley. My parents were league bowlers when I was growing up, and so I'd sometimes go along with them to the lanes and watch them play, and usually spend most of my time and money in the little arcades they always have. They also used to watch the Pro Bowlers Tour on TV on Saturdays, listening to the one-of-a-kind voice of Chris Schenkel call all of those dramatic strikes and spares. Before poker took over the airwaves in the early 2000s, bowling was the everyman game that made for far more compelling TV than you would think it would. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, Dorothy's bald yutz of an ex-husband invites himself to a baseball game that nearly gets his ex-mother-in-law killed. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit Golden Sports for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.